Good afternoon. My name is Doug Cox, and on behalf of the D.C. Lawyers Chapter of the Federalist Society, welcome to our July luncheon. We are delighted and honored to have as our guest today Ted Olson, the former Solicitor General of the United States, and good friend to many of us here in the room today, and good friend to the Society. He will be sharing with us his annual roundup of the recent Supreme Court term. His roundup is rumored to be the only reason Washington stays open in July. <laughs> that we can pull such a crowd on a summer Friday, and Friday the 13th, no less, is testimony to our enduring respect and affection for Ted. I'm also pleased to note that Judge Bork and his wife are in the audience. As you know, Judge Bork recently celebrated his 80th birthday, and the Society commemorated the event with a conference in his honor. Judge Bork. Judge, in case you didn't hear that, there was a cry of my hero from off left. <laughs> Legal realists used to say that a judge's decisions could depend on what he ate for breakfast. This term, Justice Stevens may be proving them a little off. For decades, Justice Stevens has been known for his idiosyncratic jurisprudence, but it's only recently that he is, we have started to see how intensely personal his decision-making can be. More and more frequently, he seems to be flaunting his chronological superiority over his colleagues <laughs> and basing his decisions not on old precedents but on old memories. For instance, in the Bong Hits for Jesus case, Justice Stevens' dissent invoked his childhood recollections of prohibition. In Scott versus Harris, involving a high-speed police chase in which eight justices were horrified by a videotape of the plaintiff's reckless driving, Justice Stevens was quick to argue that this was nothing compared to the driving conditions of long ago. <laughs> As he observed in the dissent, I can only conclude that my colleagues were unduly frightened by images on the tape that looked like bursts of lightning or explosions but were, in fact, merely the headlights of vehicles zooming by in the opposite lane. Had they learned to drive when most high-speed driving took place on two-lane roads, they might well have reacted to the videotape more dispassionately. <laughs> Apparently, with Justice Stevens' emerging jurisprudence of personal reminiscence, <laughs> we're going to need to modify that old saying to conclude a judge's decisions may depend on what he had for breakfast 65 years ago. <laughs> Justice Stevens' personal journey to explore the liberty of the person in both its spatial and more transcendent dimensions has led him down memory lane. And it remains to be seen whether Justice Stevens will be able to implant false memories in Justice Kennedy. <laughs> As for Justice Kennedy, whatever surprises the recently ended Supreme Court term brought with it, one development surprised no one. As CNN predicted as long ago as September 2006, before the term even began, in an item presciently entitled, Justice Kennedy Works on His Swing, Justice Kennedy submitted his position as the swing justice. He ruled with the majority in every single 5-4 case. It looks like Justice Kennedy has at last crossed the Rubicon, 
And the result is he has become Justice O'Connor. <laughs> Justice Ginsburg need pine no longer for her departed friend. One law professor who clerked for Justice Kennedy commented recently that during Justice O'Connor's tenure, quote, the most discouraging part of our job as constitutional law professors was the fact that 90% of the time we were trying to read Justice O'Connor's mind. And now I feel like my stock has gone up. As a former Kennedy clerk, I'm better at reading Justice Kennedy's mind than some of my colleagues. And that is the state of the legal academy today. Our guest, of course, need not resort to mind reading to prevail on the Supreme Court. Neiden Totenberg of NPR some years ago described Ted as the rock star of the Supreme Court bar. In 2004, at the time of Ted's resignation from his position as Solicitor General, she stated, quote, by everyone's reckoning, he's done an outstanding job. And as we all know, when it's late at night, when the chips are down, and when he's racing to the hospital, former Deputy Attorney General Jim Comey wants Ted as his lawyer. <laughs> Since returning to private practice, Ted has continued to lead in the profession and in the appellate bar. We all know that Ted likes to give us some statistics at these lunches, but he always omits a few. As you may recall, Ted concluded his tenure as Solicitor General with an astonishing win rate of 82%, a figure all the more amazing for having been won in the toughest cases and against the most talented opponents. In just the last two terms, Ted has already argued five cases and has a win rate across those cases of 80%. In one of those cases, he persuaded the court to overturn Dr. Miles' medical company, a precedent reaching back 96 years. The justices obviously have precedent on their minds, and getting the court to go along with overturning a precedent was a singular act of advocacy. Today, Dr. Miles tomorrow, Grutter versus Bollinger. Based on Ted's most recent cases, Justice Stevens and Justice Ginsburg are the most unlikely to agree with Ted's position. Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas are the most likely to be persuaded by Ted. Justice Kennedy, surprise, surprise, is comfortably ensconced in the middle, but notably he votes for and against Ted at exactly the same rate as Justices Souter and Breyer. Ted also continues to attract media attention. Last fall, the New York Times, long-serving commenter on the Supreme Court, Maureen Dowd, <laughs> described Ted as, quote, the elegant, elegant and eloquent Republican lawyer. She got that right. She went on, however, to describe the Federalist Society as rabidly conservative. Now, that's just crazy talk and demonstrates that even if a Times columnist commits the truth occasionally, you cannot expect her to make a habit of it. Media outlets continue to search for ways to describe Ted. Newsday recently described him as, quote, a conservative icon. The Washington Post uses conservative stalwart. The American Spectator came up with stalwart conservative. The Houston Chronicle contributed conservative legal icon. ABC chimed in with prominent conservative Washington lawyer. Left-wing website, Salon.com, decided to try something new. And just last month, 
in a June 25th article, actually described Tad as, quote, a big old softie. <laughs> now, the only way I can explain that is that Salon will do anything to injure Ted's reputation. <laughs> Ted received his law degree in 1965 from the University of California at Berkeley and joined Gibson Dunn in his Los Angeles office. In 1981, he was appointed by President Reagan to serve as Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel. Upon returning to the private sector, he joined Gibson Dunn's Washington office, where he led the firm's appellate practice until his confirmation as Solicitor General. He served as Solicitor General from 2001 to 2004, racking up those phenomenal numbers I mentioned earlier. When he resigned as Solicitor General, he once again returned to Gibson Dunn, where he continues his appellate and constitutional law practice and also leads the firm's crisis management practice. He is a fellow of both the American College of Trial Lawyers and the American Academy of Appellate Lawyers. Earlier this week, just when Ted may have thought he had reached the summit of the profession and there were no new worlds to conquer, he was named Attorney of the Year by the National Capital Area Boy Scouts at their annual Good Scout Award Luncheon. As a, as a result, So, Ted, Washington wise man, counsel to presidents, appellate lawyer par excellence, can now officially add Good Scout to his resume. Ted. You've got to stop this, Doug. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Federalists, for your warm welcome. This is the Federal Society's 25th year, uh, and for someone and those of us who have been participants since 1982, it is a thrill to look out and see such a robust manifestation of the growth and growing influence of the Federal Society. I also, it occurs to me that it must be appalling to law prof professors and deans across the country to know that so many of you have developed an immunity to their Kool-Aid. <laughs> And, Doug, that was very nice, very nice introduction. Um, Doug is a partner in my law firm, so you expect him to say things like this. Um, and he's certainly off to a good start on the year-end executive committee bonus. <laughs> Keep it up, Doug, but I, I think not so funny. When, not, when you're introducing, you know, the main speaker, it makes it hard. Um, I want to be serious for a moment. <clears throat> Before we turn to the just-completed Supreme Court term, to pause for a moment of reflection, our dear friend uh, and beloved colleague, Leonard Leo, lost his 14-year-old daughter, Margaret, just a week ago. Margaret was a fiery, independent spirit who fought a determined, lifelong battle against the curse of spina bifida. Fortunately, she was blessed with loving, patient, and dedicated parents in Leonard and Sally. And she taught all of us a great deal about courage and facing up to the bad hands that life sometimes deals to us. So I would like for us to observe a moment or two of silence to express our love, respect, sympathy, and admiration for Leonard and Sally and their family. Now we have to change the tone. Um, 
because the Supreme Court's not all that serious. <laughs> we customarily open our Supreme Court roundup with a brief celebration, for those of you who have been in part of this before, of a notable bit, notable bit of political, journalistic, or celebrity tomfoolery. <clears throat> it seems fitting, especially in Washington, uh, to indulge occasionally in an expression of appreciation for a display of egregious public excess of the type that we've come to expect from the personalities that look out at us from the tabloids when we check out at the supermarket. As usual, it was, a hard, to pick up, it was hard to pick a winner this year, particularly since it just doesn't seem right to shower even more attention on the likes of Paris Hilton, Britney Spears, contestants on reality television shows, self-proclaimed fathers of Anna Nicole Smith children, <laughs> or congressional sponsors of non-binding resolutions. <laughs> I think you see the connection between all of those. We love them all, of course, but they're too nimble for us. No sooner than we've absorbed, absorbed the latest ingenious costume malfunction, they've, then they've, and they've moved on to another newly creative combination of pharmaceuticals, or another way to wreck a car, or both. <laughs> Instead, this year we've determined to acknowledge a series of random acts of madness that appear at first to be entirely coincidental, but they're surely connected in some way. I think maybe global warming. <laughs> For example, every time this year, uh, about every, every year about this time, thousands of lunatics come together in Pamplona, Spain, for the San Fermin Festival. As anybody who looks at the paper or watches the television shows, uh, that entails attempting to outrun a pack of 1,500-pound, long-horned, cranky bulls through the streets of Pamplona. Why do they do this, we ask? I have no idea, but I suspect it's for the same reason that kids hold up banners proclaiming bong hits for Jesus. <laughs> It's a way to find one's own identity and to find one's own persona. In short, as Justice Kennedy would put it, an exercise of a constitutional right. <laughs> In the same ribald spirit that animates the Pamplona celebration, and at about the same time every year, 35,000 people who couldn't get tickets to Spain descend on Roswell, New Mexico, wearing bug-eyed alien creature costumes to celebrate the 2007 this year Amazing Roswell UFO Festival, commemorating a 1947 July alien landing. I don't know, and I haven't figured out, maybe you can tell me, how they know that aliens have eyes the size of cantaloupes on the size of heads the size of oranges. But they seem pretty sure of it. And perhaps not coincidentally, this is the pandering season when candidates for the Republican and Democratic presidential nominations come together in events called candidate debates and engage in Pamplona-like and Roswell-like rituals with Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich as the bug-eyed aliens. <laughs> and where all the candidates race through the streets of politically correct small-town American communities trying to avoid being gored by cranky and self-inflated journalists. Earlier this week, the FDA announced a skin patch to treat dementia. So, not soon enough, apparently, to reach Pamplona. 
Roswell, or Manchester, New Hampshire. So now let us turn to the very serious business, but the ever-shrinking task of evaluating the work of the Supreme Court <laughs> for the previous nine months. <clears throat> I'm gathering, I'm suspecting, uh, that you are reasonably happy with the court term this year. I know that because I've noted that the New York Times is very unhappy. <laughs> what, better waged, uh, what better way to gauge what is right or wrong with the world than to note the opposite reaction at the New York Times? <laughs> to the Times editorial writers, hyperbole, dem demagoguery, and moral indignation is the required style. Thus, the Supreme Court descended this year to an all-time elitist and racist low. The editors explained that, in their words, this radical new court made a sharp turn to the right. The vile majority, they didn't use the word vile, um, <laughs> but I note that vile is, a, it, it just move the letters around and you get evil, and they didn't, they didn't, they didn't use that word either, but you could sense their tone. Um, they proclaimed, view the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, and this, uh, these are their words, as a tool for protecting white students from integration. The true outrage of the year's work by the court in the eyes of the Times cannot be summarized in a few words, but the depth of the Times' pain was summed up in the last paragraph of their editorial, July 5th. Quote, It has been decades since the wealthy white people who want to attend school with other whites have had a successful Supreme Court term like this one. Well, we can't be happy just because the New York Times is sad. So let's take a closer look at the Supreme Court. First of all, I thought of a word or two about the composition of the court. What is the Supreme Court now? It strikes me that the Supreme Court is a remarkably homogeneous group. Every one of the nine justices came to the Supreme Court from a federal appeals court, four from the same D.C. circuit, two from the First Circuit, and one each from the Third, Seventh, and Ninth Circuits. Compare that with the court that decided Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 when only one of the justices had been a federal appeals court judge. That Supreme Court consisted of one former governor, three former senators, two former attorneys general, two ex-solicitors general, one professor, and one SEC chairman. That counts up to ten, but one of them held two of those jobs, as you, I'm sure you figured out. It is interesting to consider the transformation of the court in that 50-year period from a somewhat political body, uh, given that kind of experience, to what Justice Scalia might today call a collection of lawyer elites. I leave to you to determine which co composition is better for the court and for the country. But to underscore the lawyer elite point, eight of the nine current justices attended an Ivy League law school. Now, some of you think that's okay. I, the ones that are not laughing think it's okay. Six went to Harvard and two to Yale. Five are Catholic, two Jewish, and two Protestant. Five had federal court clerkships earlier in their career. Five had been law professors. Six had served in federal or state justice departments. And four had postgraduate degrees in Europe. The court is dominated by individuals who are from the East, or went to law school on the eastern seaboard, or both. When we think about prospective vacancies, we instinct instinctively think of age. Justice John Paul C. Stevens, um, and Doug was alluding to this, I think, is 87 years old. 
He's been on the court since he was appointed by President Ford in 1975, 32 years ago. Think of that. That's eight presidential terms, 32 years, and during six presidents, presidents. Three justices are in their 70s, two are in their 60s, and three are in their 50s. Aside from the two newest justices, their average tenure on the court is 20 years. The oldest two justices are two of the most liberal, if you accept those definitions, and I guess most of us would buy into that. But all of the justices seem physically fit, intellectually sharp, and fully in command of their faculties. I can tell you they ask very hard questions. None appears ready to retire. Nonetheless, the possibility of a vacancy or two before the next president completes his or her first term is high. So it is certain to be a featured issue in the presidential rhetoric that we're going to be experiencing over the next 18 months or so. Well, that's the court. What about the cases that the court considered? The trend toward fewer and fewer cases that we have observed in recent years continues under the new Chief Justice. The court produced only 65 opinions in argued cases this year. When I first gave this Federalist Society speech, I went back and looked, and it was 1993. Uh, that's 14 years ago, and in 14 years ago, the number was 107. So that's 42 less in just those 14 years. As recently as 1985, the figure was 161. And according to one compilation I reviewed, the number of cases decided with opinions in 1930 was 235. So in that period of time, we've gone from 235 to 65. I've heard some rather far-fetched theories as to why this is happening. I, I don't have any special insight. None of the theories I've heard are very persuasive to me. I just don't know, and the justices aren't saying. I must say that the trend is frustrating for those of us who practice law before the United States Supreme Court. Because <laughs> it's... I feel a little bit like a blacksmith in the age of Henry Ford. You know. <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> Fortunately, I'm old enough, so I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> uh, divisions and splits between the court and how the court sorted itself out. And Doug alluded to this, but um, he didn't take all of my lines. Um, the biggest story with respect to that, of course, was Justice Anthony Kennedy. You'll recall that Justice Kennedy was appointed after the nomination of Judge Robert Bork was defeated in the Senate, and the nomination of Judge Douglas Ginsburg was withdrawn. That was 19 years ago. This term was a vivid illustration of what a difference one justice can make. In the October term 2005, that was the previous term, Justice O'Connor's last half term and Justice Alito's first half term, Justice Kennedy was on the prevailing side in 17 of the 23 cases in which there are three or more dissents. That term, there were, four, there were three 414 decisions, and that Justice Kennedy was the one in all three of those. And we talking last year about the influence of Justice Kennedy um, in, in that context. And as Doug mentioned, this term, there were 24 5 to 4 decisions. Justice Kennedy was on the prevailing side in every single one of them. Uh, in the 1414 case, he was the one. That is 36% of the court's docket, and in every single one of those cases, Justice Kennedy's vote made the difference. Of the 24 5 4 cases, he wrote the opinion for the court in six, 
Six of his eight opinions for the court were 5-4 cases. He was on the losing side out of all those 65 cases only twice last term. He only wrote one dissenting opinion. This is, in my judgment, phenomenal. I haven't done the kinds of research that some people do, but I doubt that there's any term like this in our history. Moreover, in virtually every close case in which Justice Kennedy did not write for the court, his influence was evident in his concurrences or in the language, if you look at it, in the language used by the majority to hold his vote or in the dissent to try to attain it. Justice Kennedy was on the side of the so-called conservative bloc in most of these cases. His votes carried the day for the so-called—I always have to—I'm going to quit saying so-called because sometimes it doesn't break out this way, but I'm, not, I'm going to quit saying so-called, liberal conservative. Uh, he carried the day for the liberal wing only in a bankruptcy case, the global warming case, which I'll talk about more in a minute, and in three Texas death penalty cases. As we will discuss in a few moments, the term will be remembered as one in which the court— changed direction in several important areas, sharply distinguishing past precedents, but mostly without, mostly without overruling those precedents. This happened in the area of standing, abortion, campaign finance, and the use of race in deciding where a student could go to school, the big headline cases of the year. Those precedents weren't, re, weren't overturned. They were distinguished. The result was to infuriate the liberal justices and their allies in the media and the academic worlds, but also to frustrate the more conservative members of the court, such as Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, because the court had failed forthrightly to dispense with previous decisions that to them were clearly wrong. Why did this happen? The answer seems obvious. Justice Kennedy's unwillingness to quite go so far. That's what was going on. Why those precedents were over, over, not overturned. In only two cases did the court directly override existing precedents. This, then, is the difference, at least, in, in, uh, at, at least this last term, between a Justice Kennedy and a Justice Bork. Many of the cases, and I'm guessing and speculating, would probably have been decided with the same decision but the opinions would have been starkly different, much more decisive, forceful, clear, and much more permanent. The new justices, um, the two new justices voted with one another in nearly every case. I think the number was 95%, and with their conservative colleagues over 85% of the time. Their jurisprudence has been pretty much as most of us anticipated and hoped, conservative in principle and cautious. But they have not hesitated to stake out firm positions despite rather heated rhetorical opposition from their more liberal colleagues. They have each been reluctant to overrule precedents with which they are clearly uncomfortable. We saw that in the schools case, the abortion case, the campaign finance case, and the First Amendment Establishment Clause standing case. This is attributable to me, as far as I can tell, to four things. One, they are new on the court and still becoming accustomed to their role still taking baby steps. Two, they are each jurisprudential conservatives and genuinely quite respectful of the court's precedents. They have firm, firm convictions, but they're not bomb throwers. Three, they were questioned relentlessly during their confirmation hearings about precedent and stare decisis. And that process has had, that confirmation process and that type of questioning has had to a degree its intended effect in making them more tentative in cases where precedent is a political hot potato, as it was in those controversial cases I mentioned. Fourth, the aforementioned Kennedy factor. 
If you have to hold a fragile majority, you don't want to lose it by driving away the swing vote. If he's going to concur, you want him to concur with your side of the case. Um, reverses, reversals and affirmances. Decisions of inferior courts were reversed in slightly um, above two out of every three cases the Supreme Court heard last term. That's an affirmance rate of about one in three, which is about average for what the court does every year. The court is plainly more likely to take a case when justices have some question about the rightness of the decision below and less likely uh, to take a case when the decision below looks obviously correct. You've been waiting for this? The Ninth Circuit. <laughs> if I ever drop this, I'm, people won't come to the speech anymore. The Ninth Circuit lived up to its customary performance level last term. It did not disappoint us. It was overturned in 16 of the 18 argued cases <laughs> that came to the Supreme Court, plus three per curiam reversals, which is a two-for-21 record, an affirmance rate of one out of ten. In votes cast, the Ninth Circuit received 42 votes out of a total of 189. This isn't baseball, of course, but a major leaguer who gets a hit once every three times at the plate is considered to be doing pretty well. On the other hand, if he consistently bats less than 100, he doesn't stay in the majors very long. <laughs> that pretty much tells the story. The judges on that circuit simply don't read very well, if at all, <laughs> the line that the Supreme Court is pitching. Let's turn now to some of the specific cases and decisions of the court this term. As you know, and the reason Judge Bork is here, I'm always trying to look for cases with sex appeal um, because, uh, dare we say it, the Supreme Court can be a pretty cerebral case, and it's nice Judge Bork likes to have something to stick into his, um, his speeches that have some special sex appeal, I think. Uh, you know the type of case I'm referring to, the, the 1991 case of Barnes versus Glenn Theater. For example, when Justice Scalia invited us, in his words, to visualize 60,000 fully consenting adults crowded into the Hoosier Dome displaying their genitals to one another. <laughs> Remember that favorite case? Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, these cases come along quite rarely. <laughs> Depends upon how you look at it. And we're often disappointed when an apparently salacious case turns to dust as we were last year when the Anna Nicole Smith case turned out to be about bankruptcy. <laughs> I thought we had one, but we had another miss this year. The case was Soul versus Weiner. I'm sure many of you read it. Decided on June 4th. It involved a group who wished to create an anti-war artwork at a park in Florida on Valentine's Day in 2003 consisting of nude individuals assembled into a peace sign. This is true. The case, unfortunately, turned out to be about who was the prevailing party and who was entitled, therefore entitled to attorney's fees. That's a subject that very few people find sexy except for perhaps attorneys. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that even you attorneys out there are not thinking about the fees when I mention this, but how those nude bodies would look formed into a peace sign. Or for some of you, I know, maybe Dick Wiley, uh, how those nude bodies would look 
when they were performed in something that looked like a peace sign but was actually the symbol for a Mercedes. <laughs> Aside from the peace sign and maybe bong hits for Jesus, uh, I think this term will be remembered principally for five developments. Standing, abortion, campaign finance, race-based school assignments, and decisions affecting business. In the limited time we have, and believe me, I know it's a limited time, uh, let me spend a few minutes on each, but they're important. First, standing. The court seems to be bipolar on standing. Uh, last term, in the, the, time, the term before this, in the Daimler Crisis versus Kuno case, in one of Chief Justice Roberts' first opinions, the court forcefully rejected several standing arguments in turning away claims by business, businesses and taxpayers who were challenging Ohio's program of giving tax incentives to businesses to locate plants in Ohio. His opinion was quite powerful and broad, and he was joined by all of his colleagues except Justice Ginsburg. She concurred in the result, but was not willing to embrace many of the precedents on which Chief Justice Roberts relied. She must have seen what was coming this term and was not willing to give Chief Justice Roberts the momentum he was claiming, he was trying to claim, in an area that is obviously quite important to him as a jurisprudential conservative. This court took a major step back on standing from that strong position in a 5-4 decision that interest groups, and particularly states, could challenge an EPA decision that it, the EPA, had neither the legislative authority nor the scientific certainty necessary to regulate greenhouse gases. The decisive argument for Justice Stevens and the four colleagues that joined him was acceptance of the notion that greenhouse gases were making the climate warmer, that in turn was causing ice to melt and sea levels to rise. Don't panic yet. Uh, it's going to be a long time. But thus diminishing the land mass of Massachusetts, and thereby causing it the kind of concrete injury necessary to accord it standing to challenge EPA's failure to regulate carbon dioxide emissions from motor vehicles. That, that, so that was the standing decision for, by Justice Stevens. The Chief Justice's dissent, joined by Justices Scalia, Thomas, and Alito, explained that relaxing standing requirements because injuries are asserted by a state has no apparent support in the court's jurisprudence and had not remotely been demonstrated by the authorities cited in Justice Stevens' opinion. He had carved out a new rule of standing that had not even been briefed or argued by the parties. Justice Scalia explained how utterly manipulable um, standing, and just Chief Justice Roberts rather, explained how utterly manipulable standing requirements are if not taken seriously as a matter of judicial self-restraint. On the merits, Justice Stevens found that carbon dioxide, which we all produce when we breathe, and which plants must have in order to live, is a pollutant. And he ruled that although the EPA had declined to regulate carbon dioxide on policy grounds, as well as the fact that the EPA did not think it had the authority to do so, its reasoning, in his view, was not sufficient. Justice Scalia's dissent on the merits just, Chief Justice Roberts dissented on standing, Justice uh, Scalia on the merits, um, criticized the majority for, quote, substituting its own desired outcome for the reasoned judgment of the responsible agency, uh, close quote. And I agree, on the merits, this case turns Chevron deference on its head. The agency believed it had neither the legal authority nor the remedial power to act, 
and insufficient facts on which to make sensible policy decisions, even if it did have the authority to do so, the court said, go ahead, do it anyway. <laughs> None of the dissenters um, stumbled on what I thought was an obvious weakness in the majority's standing opinion. It was n not just that no one had proven any actual diminution of Massachusetts territory. It was that no one had proved that making Massachusetts smaller was a bad thing. <laughs> On the other side of the standing debate, the court rejected a taxpayer standing claim based on an asserted violation of the Establishment Clause, relying on a very narrow reading of the peculiar, I've always thought peculiar, Flast versus Cohen precedent. For those of you who are not among the standing aficionados in this room, I suspect there's more than one or two who are not, um, Flast was a Warren-era decision that concluded that while taxpayers had traditionally been perceived as having too attenuated and, utterly limit, and an utterly limitless basis for challenging a government policy, a viable challenge could be brought, nonetheless could be brought, by a taxpayer objecting to the use of federal funds that violates the Establishment Clause, as opposed to all the other clauses of the Constitution. In a very labored decision this last term in the case was called Hein, H-E-I-N, um, Hein versus Freedom from Religion, Justice Alito managed to avoid overruling Flast by finding a distinction between federal spending according to specific congressional authorization and on the one hand and spending by the executive branch under a general legislative appropriation which did not explicitly authorize the use of funds for the purposes to which the challengers had objected. In short, if I can say that again, if Congress appropriates for a religious purpose, a taxpayer might have standing to challenge it. If an executive branch agency spends undesignated appropriate, appropriated funds for a religious purpose or an allegedly religious purpose, there is no taxpayer standing. Justice Kennedy's concurrence in the opinion made it clear that he believed that Flast versus Cohen correctly held that freedom of conscience was something special that would accord standing to a challenge to government taxing and spending in the form in favor of religion. But if applied to the executive branch, he feared it might stifle discussion of religion, such as references to God in presidential speeches, and he therefore joined the Alito opinion. His vote and his explanation for his vote was obviously the reason, it seems to me, for the narrowness and the crampedness of the, um, uh, the opinion for the court um, by the Chief Justice. Justice Scalia's concurrence made the forceful point that Justice Alito's effort, I mean, just, it was Justice Scalito, Alito who had written the majority, that Justice Alito's effort to square his opinion with the court's previous cases addressing taxpayer standing to challenge government expenditures quote, lies in the creation of utterly meaningless distinctions which separate the case at hand from precedents that came out differently, but which cannot possibly, in any sane world, be the reason it comes out differently. If this court is to decide cases by rule of law rather than show of hands, we must just surrender to logic and choose sides. He's really good when he says things like that. <laughs> Either, he said, apply flast even-handedly or repudiate it. And for those interested in a more detailed and rational discussion of standing, Justice Scalia's opinion with its distinction between wallet injury 
he puts it, and psychic injury, um, and his ex explanation of why one comports with one of those wallet injury comports with Article 3 and the other psychic injury does not, uh, is a model of clarity and an excellent analysis in the rights, of, and rights and wrongs of the court's standing decisions. If you read all those cases, and no one would, in their right mind would do that unless you had a case and some high-paying client, if you want a shortcut, um, read Justice uh, Scalia's opinion. He explains it very well. All right, moving on. Uh, partial birth abortion. The court's abortion decision is another example this year where the court stretched to find distinctions that are difficult to understand, much less to defend, to explain a result at variance with its precedents, but rationalized as not sufficiently at variance with them to require overturning a prior decision. As all of you know, in 1973, in Roe v. Wade, the court discovered a previously unnoticed constitutional right to an abortion lurking in the zone of privacy rooted in the First, Fourth, Fifth, and Ninth Amendments, the penumbras of the Bill of Rights, and the concept of liberty guaranteed by the First, Amendment, first Section of the Fourteenth Amendment. Then in 1992, in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, Justices O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter, speaking for the court, declared that, quote, liberty finds no refuge in a jurisprudence of doubt. <laughs> a jurisprudential standard that, if put in actual practice, might be welcome to police officers and school board officials. That meant, the Casey Court went on, that at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. You've heard this phrase before, which Justice Scalia refers to as the famed, famed sweet mystery of life passage. <laughs> but I love to hear it so much that I can't resist to bring it in every speech I give. <laughs> Therefore, the Casey Court opinion after that explanation of the existence of human life, um, principles of institutional integrity and the rule of stare decisis required that court to state that Roe's essential holding be reaffirmed as to a woman's right to choose to have an abortion without undue interference and that restrictions on abortion could be upheld only if laws doing so contained exceptions necessary to protect a woman's health. In Stenberg versus Carhart in 2000, the court struck down on the basis of Casey a Nebraska statute prohibiting a, what is called a late-term or partial birth abortion procedure. I know these terms are controversial, but the medical terms are totally un unintelligible. Um, uh, the Nebraska statute, which prohibited that late-term or partial birth abortion, was struck down because it contained no exemption for procedures deemed appropriate by a doctor for preservation of the health of the mother, and that that failure imposed an undue burden on the right to an abortion. The Stenberg case in 2000 the Mart was a case, one of those 5-4 cases, and eight separate justices wrote opinions, erecting a modern version of the Tower of Babel. <laughs> Justice Kennedy was one of the dissenters, and every time I look at that case and its eight opinions, I think, what did they mean by liberty finds no refuge in a jurisprudence of doubt? <laughs> <clears throat> this term the court confronted another late-term abortion prohibition, very much like the Nebraska statute rejected in Stenberg, but there were a few differences. This was a federal law. It was narrower than the Nebraska law in the sense that it prohibited only one kind of late-term procedure, 
and it can contain congressional findings asserting that the procedure prescribed was never really necessary for the health of the mother, and therefore it didn't need a health uh, exemption, which was the central reason why Nebraska's statute had been struck down earlier. But the biggest difference this time was not in the language of the statute itself or the congressional findings. It was a new justice on the court. Chief Justice Roberts had replaced Chief Justice Rehnquist, but that would not have made much of a difference because the, chief just, the new chief turned out to hold pretty much the same views regarding abortion as his old boss, the late chief, with the replacement of Justice O'Connor with Justice Alito appears to have made a real difference. This time, the decision, which is in a case called Gonzalez versus Carhartt, was written by Justice Kennedy, who, as I noted, had penned a rather vehement dissent in the Stenberg case, um, saying that the court, this decision, he says, the court was, uh, uh, he had said in the Stenberg case, the earlier case, that the court dissenting, that the court was misreading the Casey opinion, which he had had such an involvement in. The problem with a Kennedy opinion this time is that it is so narrowly drawn to, to avoid reversing the Stenberg opinion of a few years ago and, is, and so careful to line up with the opinion in Casey that it borders on being incomprehensible, at least it is to me. How could this federal statute have survived without a health, health exception where the Nevada statute failed? It's impossible for me to explain this in a few minutes, but... According to what the court said, it did so. The court focused on, on the limited nature of the procedure prohibited, other legal alternatives, procedural alternatives, abortion procedures to accomplish the same result, and the very narrow restriction that the federal statute imposed. Justice Kennedy also zeroed in on the federal interest, to use his words, in exercising Congress's regulating authority quote, to show, show its profound respect for the life within the woman and the federal government's interest, largely undiscovered in earlier abortion cases, in, quote, protecting the integrity and ethics of the medical profession. These interests that he cited led to language like the following. The syntax and ethereal tone will be familiar to those of you who have read and studied Justice Kennedy's essays in Casey, Romer versus Evans, and Lawrence versus Texas. Respect for human life finds an ultimate expression in the bond of love the mother has for her child. While we find no reliable data to measure the phenomenon, it seems unexceptionable to conclude that some women come to regret their choice to abort the infant life they once created and sustained. Severe depression and loss of esteem can follow. It is self-evident that a mother who comes to regret her choice to abort must struggle with grief more anguished and sorrow more profound once she learns of the nature of the procedure that she's been submitted to. This led the court to the con this conclusion. The state's interest in respect for life is advanced by the dialogue that better informs the political and legal systems the medical profession, expectant mothers, and society as a whole of the consequences that follow from a decision to elect a late-term abortion. Why are, you, why are you looking confused? <laughs> it is obvious. Um, the federal statute prohibiting partial birth abortion is constitutional because it advances a state interest in fostering dialogue. 
Needless to say, the outcome, the stealth reversal of Stenberg, the convoluted reasoning of the court's opinion, and its somewhat patronizing tone infuriated Justice Ginsburg. Her dissenting opinion, joined by Justices Stevens, Souter, and Breyer, uh, does a very good job of eviscerating the court's opinion, its logic, and its language, its reliance on con congressional findings that even the Kennedy opinion acknowledged as flawed. But before I move on, I should mention the largely unpublicized and very short concurrence in the majority opinion by Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Scalia. Justice Thomas pointedly noted that the parties had not raised or briefed the issue whether the federal anti-late-term abortion law constituted a permissible exercise of the police power under the Commerce Clause. Oh, my Lord, we forgot about that. <laughs> a very good point, which might well suggest two additional votes to strike down the federal statute if someone decides to bring a Commerce Clause challenge and to cite the, the gun-free school zone case and the Violence Against Women Act case, which struck down federal laws purporting to regulate purely local activities like taking a gun to school and rape. Justice Thomas takes a very principled view of the Commerce Clause, notwithstanding his strong views about Roe versus Wade, so it's something to watch. I hope I'm not pressing our time limits too much. Um, but we have to talk about the campaign finance case and the school case. Um, the campaign finance case was another decision that caused great consternation on both sides of the court's ideological divide. Like the abortion case, FEC versus Wisconsin Right to Life came to the court with heavy and confusing precedential baggage. Starting with Buckley versus Vallejo in 1976, the court has struggled with various efforts by Congress to restrict campaign financing at both the contribution and the expenditure levels. Buckley upheld a distinction between contribution limits and expenditure limits on the theory that if you're making a contribution, that's really not direct speech. You're just giving money to someone else to speak. But an expenditure limit is less constitutional because you can't go out and spend your money to say what you want to do. And the Buckley case specifically had an exemption for non-express election advocacy. If you're talking about issues, you could do that. Um, uh, and then Congress came along with the McCain-Feingold statute banning corporate or union advertising that mentioned a candidate during election cycles. You could say, as the Wisconsin right to life was, call up your congressman and tell them not to oppose a filibuster, uh, like Senator Feingold is, uh, or not to filibuster judicial candidates like Senator Feingold has been doing, or Senator Cole has been doing. That was banned by, or purportedly banned by the new statute. Wisconsin Right to Life case, the case this term, came very close to uh, overturning the election advocacy provisions of the McConnell decision, McConnell versus FEC, which upheld that McCain versus Feinkold limitation just a couple of years ago. By striking down any such restriction on issue advertising by corporate or union groups, including particularly nonprofits, unless the ads constitute the functional equivalent of express candidate advocacy. That is, if the ad is susceptible of no reasonable interpretation other than as an appeal to vote for or against a particular candidate. This opinion by the Chief Justice was joined in part by Justice Alito, but, a, but pleased virtually no one on the court. Justice Souter, joined by justices, other, the, the liberal justices, dissented, despairing that the devotion of concentrations of money in self-interested hands, I was thinking, what kind of hands usually have all this money? <laughs> 
The devotion of, con of concentrations of money and self-interested hands to the support of political campaigning threatens the capacity of this democracy to represent its constituents and the confidence of its citizens in their capacity to govern themselves. The theory is that here is that big money spent to support candidates is both corrupting and unfair and threatens to bring down the republic. There's no mention in that opinion of the immense amount of money pumped into the political process by the George Soroses of this world, by billionaire candidates such as Michael Bloomberg, the immense financial advantage held by incumbents, and the power of large publishers and broadcasts to spend whatever they want to say whatever they want, broadcasters. Justice um, Souter also complained that this was ignoring the precedent of the McConnell decision of a couple years ago. Justice Scalia poked no, numerous holes in Justice Souter's opinion by pointing out all of its deficiencies, but he saved some of his strongest language for the, for the Chief Justice's opinion. This is Justice Scalia criticizing Chief Justice Roberts precisely because it did not overrule the McConnell decision. He pointed out that seven of the nine justices saw the opinion as, in fact, having overruled McConnell of just a couple of years ago. The failure to do so, he said, is faux judicial restraint, which is in reality judicial obfuscation. Uh, the school cases. Um, the decision that was the most controversial, produced the most rancor, and the strongest language from the justices was the last case decided on the last day of the term. It involved two public school systems that used race as a potentially decisive factor in assigning school students to particular schools. The issue in Parents Involved versus Seattle School District was whether public school systems in Seattle and Louisville, Louisville, my, my wife insists that I pronounce it, could use race as a factor or a tiebreaker in assigning students to schools when their presence in or absence from a particular school would contribute to resegregation or to use the popular but ultimately invidious phrase, racial imbalance. I object to that term because the implication of it is that the ratio of different races in any particular group must generally reflect the overall population. Thus, for example, uh, to employ an illustration that I've, I've discussed with Mary Ellen Bork from time to time, Norwegians are grossly underrepresented in the Catholic church hierarchy, and something must be done about it. <laughs> The last time this general issue of race assigning uh, where you could go to school was before the court in Grutter versus Gratz, the two cases, Grutter and Gratz, cases in 2003. That was the case. Those two cases involved plans devised by the same Board of Regents of the University of Michigan to serve the same ends, racial diversity or racial balance, in the student populations of Michigan's law school and undergraduate school. The court came to two opposing conclusions in the two programs devised by the same Board of Regents for the same reasons on the same day. The undergraduate plan was unconstitutional. The court decided in a five to four vote in Gratz in seven separate opinions, consuming 71 printed pages in the U.S. reports. Grutter, the law school plan, was upheld by a five to four vote in a case consisting of six opinions and 90 printed pages in the U.S. Supreme Court. Justice O'Connor was the only justice who thought both decisions were correct. Well, things are no easier now that the jurisprudence of doubt um, has been eliminated, and, and no clearer this time. Parents involved this case this term and yielded five separate opinions consisting of 178 pages, including a 
page dissenting opus by Justice Breyer. The facts of the case were not that complicated. Each school district wished to preserve specified racial balances in its respective schools. Seattle defines students as white or non-white. Jefferson County, Kentucky classified students as black or other. Doesn't that tell you something? In Seattle, Hispanics and Asians are non-white. In Louisville, they are other, meaning non-black. To use the Chief Justice's phrase from last term for this sort of thing, what a sordid business. In each system, the student's racial class classification could be determinative in where he or she went to school. In brief, a plurality of the court found the programs unconstitutional. The way to stop discrimination on the basis of race, the Chief Justice stated, is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. The Chief Justice's opinion started with the proposition that government benefits or burdens allocated by race were subject to strict scrutiny. The burden was on the government to establish a narrowly tailored program to accomplish a compelling governmental interest. Since these programs were not designed to remedy de jure segregation, there was no remedial compelling governmental interest, nor was there a grutter compelling governmental interest such as it is, achieving student body diversity based on a broad array of justifications. Here, race was the beginning and the end and the means and everything else. Racial balancing, pure and simple. Nor were these programs narrowly tailored since, to put, put bluntly, they over-inclusively defined and under-inclusively defined everyone in the whole world in two categories. I was wondering when I read, read this, which category and which school district would we put Tiger Woods' infant daughter in? And how would she feel about it? Chief Justice uh, Roberts defended his decision as squarely consistent with the colorblind principle of the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause articulated in Brown versus Board of Education and the famous Harlan dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson, which is worth saying again. In view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. Justice Breyer, produced by a factor of two to one, uh, his longest dissent ever, which he delivered in open court, and I have to oversimplify because our time is short, he believes that the law requires a standard of review that is not strict, not strict scrutiny, in the traditional sense of the word, he says, although it does require careful contextual review. Uh, and deference to the local school boards. I was on a program with him in Aspen last week, and I said, you guys weren't too happy about the deference to local school boards in Topeka, Kansas. You know, remember that? Um, using race to avoid segregation, he put it, is in, uh, in fact, segregation in fact, because of the disbursement of the students, or to achieve or maintain racial balance, in his view, does not violate the Equal Protection Clause because it aims to include not exclude, okay? Good discrimination versus bad discrimination. Good discrimination is okay. Justice Kennedy's concurrence, which made the whole thing very confusing, which makes this a 414 case, tracks the views of the justice he replaced on the court, Lewis Powell, 
in the 414 Bakke case. Racial diversity is a compelling governmental interest in his view and may be sought in schools using race as a factor in forming student bodies. But these programs were not narrowly tailored because various measures that could have been implemented that didn't focus directly on race could have accomplished the same result. Justice Breyer, in his dissent, systematically went through and said we, all, none of those things work, but um, you should have seen the dynamics that day. Uh, you could see that both Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Breyer were trying to win over Justice Kennedy. Neither succeeded. He rather pointedly rejected both of their opinions. In fact, he was tougher on Justice Breyer. Justice Thomas's concurrence was what you might expect. He strongly opposes any government program that divides citizens according to their race. He stated that racial imbalance is not segregation, and the mere incantation of terms like resegregation and remediation cannot make up the difference. Challenging the concept that benign race-based decision of benign race-based decision making, he declared that racial paternalism can be as poisonous and pernicious as any other form of discrimination. Every time the government uses these programs, someone gets excluded, and the person excluded suffers an injury solely because of their race. Justice Stevens, this is the fifth opinion would have gone even further than Justice Breyer. The racial classifications at issue in this case do simply, in his view, do not impose burdens and do not stigmatize or exclude. Um, he would have rejected what he calls a rigid adherence to strict scrutiny, which means not strict scrutiny, um, that, and, and, that, and that he... Uh, it's, it's good discrimination, and that's okay. Um, and he closed by stating that no member of the court that I joined in 1975 would have agreed with today's decision. Well, I went back and I looked at the composition of the court in 1975. I found that that included Chief Justice Berger, Justices White, Justice Rehnquist, and Justice Stewart, who weren't too keen on racial discrimination, and it also included the Justice Stevens, who in 1980, in the Fowlove decision, said, quote, racial classifications are simply too pernicious, pernicious to permit any but the most exact connection between justification and classification, which sounds like strict scrutiny, which, sounds like, which is what he doesn't care about anymore. There you have it. On those cases, we either have a colorblind constitution that does not permit government classifications on the basis of race, except in the narrowest, most remedial of circumstances, or a constitution that permits gross classifications, such as other or non-white or non-black, if the motives are benign, with little scrutiny and considerable deference to the creators of the programs. That's the two sides, and Justice Kennedy is astride the middle. Uh, I'm going to skip the business cases um, uh, because of our time and uh, simply say that the, what we might be looking for most of all in the next year's term um, or, or most prominently in next year's term is that the court on the last day of the term reversed the decision that it had made a couple of months before not to take the terrorism um, the terrorist retention cases. It would have taken four votes to take that case. The court decided not to take it in part because I guess the Congress had changed the habeas corpus statute and prescribed a mechanism for dealing with it. Then on the last day of the term, it reversed that decision and decided to grant that case. What would have taken four votes a month and a half before now would have had to taken five votes 
and it got five, the court got five votes to take the case. Four justices weren't going to take a month and a half before. Who knows, but someone suggests that Justice Kennedy has come around and Justice Stevens, who didn't join the dissenters to the denial of cert the first time around, now sees he's got his fifth vote and the court's going to take the case. So that'll be on for the docket for next term. And like those television series that end for the summer and resume in the fall, the court will be back in action in a few months, and the saga continues. As Dan Rather used to say, courage. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. As you know, we have a tradition in this chapter of giving our guests a leather-bound copy of the Fuzzerless Papers, but someone suggested it was possible to have too many copies. And we understand, we've been told that... As you long can... as there's still the same thing in each one, I right. think probably you don't need more than right. five or six. Five or six. <laughs> one for the car. But, uh, but we have heard it said that you don't think you can have too many bottles of wine, so we're happy to present you with a bottle of wine. Thank you. You're right about the wine. Mic check, mic check.